At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Welcome to episode 28 of Best in Show, the only podcast dedicated to the show rabbit and show KB industry. As always, I am one of your hosts, Bryony Smith. I am here with the charming and debonair Alan Messick. Ah, it's good to be back, Bryony. We took a, a couple of weeks off to, uh, well, get ready for convention, which is like right around the corner and we're all super pumped about it. Um, how are you faring in these, in these couple of weeks before convention? Well, um, we've been thrown a little bit of a curveball. As everyone knows, there was a diagnosed case of RHD in St. Paul, Minnesota a few weeks ago, and that did affect a couple of our uh, presentations for the Standards Committee. So we have kind of had to scramble to make some alternate plans for those two, as well as one that is stuck in Canada, unable to present because of border closures. So we are going to be conducting Zoom presentations. Hopefully that will all be done before the convention so we can announce the results there. And um, hopefully things will go well with these and, you know, we'll be able to um, give a full and accurate evaluation and report back to everyone at convention. I think we've all learned over the last 18 months that flexibility is essential and you know, doing the Zoom presentations last year for those CODs, that was the only option. And it it was, it, it worked and it was able to keep people that are behind these CODs, which take years to develop and then years to go through the process. It was able to keep them viable. So, uh, you know, hats off to you and the entire ARBS Standards Committee for coming up with these last minute flexible changes to allow these uh, new breeds and varieties to to it you know, participate and work towards their end all goal. Um, you've got a massive job coming up. You are the ARBA standards chair. This is your first year in that role. Um, how does it feel uh, going into this over the next two weeks? Are you, are you excited? Yeah, I am. Um, I mean, this case was a curveball. We'd kind of been holding our breath because I know that some in California and Colorado um, were possible um, presentations that could be affected by RHG. Everything was going so well there. It was looking so good. And then bam, Minnesota, who would have thought? Um, but otherwise I'm excited. Um, I like putting on events. So I've put on a lot of planning into that. <laughs> um, and we're going to do, you know, a few little different things this year to, um, kind of showcase this event a little bit more, because I know that it is a really popular spectator event. You know, people talk about, you know, 
blocking space out in their day to come watch presentations, whether that's the whole day or whether that's, you know, one or two of their favorites, something in their own breed, something a friend raises. Um, I see pictures of the board up on Facebook every year where people at home are watching the verdict on each of these presentations. So it really is, you know, an interesting day for people. So we're going to do, you know, a few little extra things to try to make that um, both a fun spectator event, um, maybe a little more photo friendly. And then we've got an exciting little um, new feature at the end. Um, Lewis Potter and Noah Miller from PM Graphics have designed and donated a banner to use for us to write on instead of an erasable whiteboard. And we will be auctioning that at the end of presentations to the highest bidder with all the funds going to our ARBA library fund. So if you're interested in that, if, you know, you want to own a piece of history, maybe you want to surprise a friend with a gift, um, come on out and bid on that banner. You could take that home with you. That is so cool. And as you describe that, that uh, Tuesday of convention, when the presentations are going on, it is the most vibrant piece of the showroom. I mean, if you don't know where the CODs are being presented to the committee, just look for a mass amount of people. And if if you don't see it, listen, because you're going to be hearing claps and applause and so much emotion. Um, for people that might be going to the convention the very first time this year, you know, um, you want to give out a layout of the day on Tuesday to watch those that those exciting moments as new breeds and varieties go before your committee for approval? What, what happens and where can they go and, and about what time in the morning and when does it end? Sure. Um, it starts at eight o'clock in the morning and the show tables are set up kind of in a big horseshoe shape with the committee in the middle. Um, we have some space between the show tables and our tables because we need to be able to discuss things across the table, but also kind of be out of the earshot of all the spectators because all of our discussions are confidential. And at first, there will be a few presentations, usually five to six, will be loaded on the table at once. We will break into groups and go through those, you know, one group at a time. So the first group that goes through, we'll check the ear numbers, we'll weigh each rabbit in the presentation, we'll make any, you know, pertinent measurements such as ear length and note those all on a sheet of paper that stays with the presentation. And then each group will go through, examine the animals, look for DQs, um, write, you know, some notes on the, pre on the um, paper if we think that there's anything the next group might want to look at or that might affect the presentation in general. And we're also taking notes for ourselves because we all keep records of the presentations, you know, what we think of them year from year, our impression, as well as the overall, I guess, kind of permanent record, which is what I keep in my file. Um, so we'll go through, we'll evaluate each group of presentations, and then we'll come back and gather at the table and we will conference on each of them in the published order. So we'll go through um, everyone at the table gets to talk about each presentation. It's very diplomatic. Uh, a new person starts each discussion. So we go around and everyone you know, tells what they thought of the presentation. You know, it's quality, maybe um, outstanding animals, maybe some faults that we noticed. We go around and everyone gets to discuss it and we listen to everyone else's opinion. Um, which is really interesting. And I think that's the part that for the committee members, um, as Chris Zimney says, it makes you a better judge because you get to learn from other people's perspectives, things that they look at, their impressions. Um, and then we consider all of those. And then we will go around in the same order and vote on each presentation. Um, if we saw a disqualification, we do actually vote on that. 
So we may take a vote whether or not to make a disqualification. And then even if we do vote for a disqualification, we will still go around and take a full vote um, just to keep everything, you know, above board and perfectly recorded. Um, so we'll go around and once we've discussed every presentation on the table, we will then call up the COD spokesperson again in that order and they will come sit down and we will deliver the verdict to them. And, you know, whether it's a pass or a fail, they will get a sheet of paper with some of our comments, you know, things that we liked about the presentation, our suggested improvements, and then um, the verdict will be written up on the board. Usually the spokesperson will go and, you know, kind of tell their group or team and the crowd will react to that. So it's it's pretty quiet uh, when a presentation doesn't pass. But when something does get a pass, um, there's a lot of cheering, hooping and hollering. I know the Czech Frosty people bring a large flag to wave. Um, so it's really, I mean, it's it's quite a day. Uh, and it goes through kind of like that with presentations coming up in groups. So there will be a certain part of the day in which, you know, several of the results are written in fairly quick succession. That's kind of when people tend to take and post photos for updates. Um, not after everyone, but after each group. And it will continue until we're done. Usually it's about mid-afternoon. Um, so with all of the numbers, the animals and the presentation, a lot of times we are looking at, you know, the same number of animals maybe that we would judge in a show, 200 to 250. And it's exciting. Um, to me, it goes really fast. I don't think of it as being mentally exhausting kind of until I'm done when then I realize it was. Um, but it's exciting. I mean, I think for a lot of us, being on the standards committee is you know, it's a bucket list thing. I think it's one of the greatest honors that you can receive as a judge. And everyone really takes it seriously. Um, it's it's a weighty responsibility to make these decisions. And I will tell you that, um, you know, back there, everyone roots for the presenters. Uh, that, that surprised me pleasantly when I began. Um, we want to be able to say yes, but we also, you know, have to follow our consciences and do what is best for the organization and for the breeds. Yeah, and you do such a great job. That entire committee does. It's it is a moment in history because your committee only meets once per year when it comes to looking at the acceptance of new breeds and varieties. So um, it's a very momentous occasion at every convention, and it's kind of cool because best in show is done at that point. It's the last full day at the convention before the mass exodus before we all leave on Wednesday, um, and it's a very special moment, a very special day. Of course, for you guys, it's a lot of work. But um, we really encourage convention goers in Louisville or, or any convention in the future to check out the the energy that goes on down there um, because it is a, a piece of history made. It's at that moment where new breeds and varieties are either accepted or not, or at least accepted to go farther in their pathway towards recognition within the ARB and then ultimately end up in our coveted ARB standard of perfection. Indeed. Uh, and it's it's exciting for us too. You know, again, it's a weighty responsibility, but it's something that that we enjoy. Um, I will tell you, this is my first time as the chair of the committee. I am a little bit nervous about delivering, you know, bad news to people. That's always a lot harder than delivering good news. That's really easy. Um, so I've been like kind of rehearsing a few things, but um, you know, it's it's part of the job, and and I can handle it. It certainly is. And it, it, it's exactly why when a new breed or variety is accepted into our into our standard, it's a big deal because the pathway to get there is is really tough. And your committee puts so many hours into it. And we see you guys working in person that day, but we know that the Air Base Standards Committee 
chats year round on, you know, through email um, on other things beyond just these. So this is not something that you guys just run into that on, on that Wednesday and work on. This is something that's been ongoing. We just get to actually work, watch you work in person and you're not going to sweat. You're going to be great at, uh, at, at, of course, giving great news and and some of the sad news too. But hopefully for those sad news recipients, they have another year to come back with uh, a new game plan and a new course of action. Yes, we hope so. Um, and yeah, for us, this is a 24-hour job, at least for me, during the convention. Um, the, the big day when everyone sees us working is presentation day, but really um, we're on call the entire time because we do our best to make sure that no presentation fails for something that could be avoided. You know, so if a rabbit pulls out a toenail or something like that or gets injured in the showroom, you know, I always have to be available to get down to the showroom as soon as possible to view that, to make notes of it. So, you know, a presentation isn't failing for some sort of freak accident like that. So unfortunately, I'm not going to have much party time at convention this year, (laughs) but that's all right. Work, work, work. So um, in these couple weeks, have you been uh, to have you been judging? Have you been traveling? Um, I did um, do a show just this past weekend. Um, it was a, a little one. It was fun. I had actually I, I often go up to show at the Iowa State Convention, which is normally the first weekend in October because it's got great Dutch competition. I have a lot of friends up there. I just really like it. Um, this year I'd kind of planned on that. However, you know, with the ARBA asking people not to move convention-bound rabbits for 14 days prior and me needing to follow all of the rules. Um, I didn't take animals up, but I did go up and judge a Dutch specialty, which was fun. Um, got to hang out with some friends. But uh, other than that, I am taking, of course, this coming weekend off. I have a lot to prepare for. <laughs> yes, you do. We all do. Um, and that was funny. You get to do a Dutch specialty. That Iowa, that's a that's a pretty big Dutch area. I recall judging Dutch there at the Iowa State Fair maybe three or four years ago and was totally impressed with the quality of Dutch there and the numbers. Yeah. Um, and it was somewhat down this year, again, due to the RHD case in Minnesota. But often there are, you know, at least 100 in the Saturday uh, open show and specialty and open and, you know, 40 to 50 in use. So it's a good turnout and it's fun, friendly competition. That's fun. I love judging Dutch. But, you know, you talked about kind of being worn out after me a day doing the standards committee. I, I always have like a mental wear out after I judge Dutch, especially in quantity, because they are a thinking breed. You really have to put a lot of components together. And I don't know about you. I'm sure you do. You're very, very uh, detail oriented, especially with Dutch. But when I judge Dutch, you know, I don't leave very many stones unturned when I go through those rabbits. You know, it's going through every single marking and making a comment on it, maybe a brief comment, but nothing gets gets uh, left out. And those Dutch breeders, they they hold you to it. They want to hear everything. Yes, they do. Um, and I know that that's one breed where, you know, you find the odd eye spot or freckle. Um, you're more often going to be met with a laugh and, oops, I didn't see that, rather than, you know, anger or something to that effect. Um, they really are a good group of people and, you know, very kind of aware of some of the pitfalls of the breed and difficulties of the breed in that way. Absolutely. Um, I guess to me, since that's, you know, what I've done for 30 years, it, it doesn't wear me out. <laughs> that's probably the easiest breed for me to judge all day. But, you know, again, I've practiced more days than not in my life looking at yeah. my own rabbits. So what's another breed for you that that takes a lot of mental capacity? I, I think for me, it it would be probably tans and not because they're yeah, they don't have the, the marking. Di- I mean, they're a marked breed, but the marking differentiations are not as uh 
let's say vast as, as you see in Dutch. But for me, judging them is mentally draining because the posing, you know, you're letting the animal do the movement and it takes sometimes a long time to get them to actually show themselves off, even though in your heart, you know, like, okay, this one hasn't done it yet, but I just know he's going to, you know, he's going to pop up and show his round hips and his great front leg and daylight and, and short body, but it takes a while to get there. And it, it can be kind of draining, especially when you're going through one, one by one. What's a breed for you that, that also kind of wears you down? Um, I, I would agree the running breeds, um, they take some energy, both physically and mentally. Cause a lot of times you're kind of running or trotting along with them, um, to see them in those various phases of movement. Actually the breed that was hardest for me at the beginning. And that's why I got some a few, you know, several years ago when I took my judges test and then, you know, I ended up getting some again because I always liked them was actually English spots. Um, and I think what's difficult about them for me was that, in a lot of ways, the markings are a little more abstract than the Dutch. You know, in a Dutch, there's exactly one right way for the markings to be. And, you know, if it's not like this, it's wrong. It's it's very concrete. With spots, it's more abstract. You know, you want to look at things like the graduation, the, you know, flow of the sweeps, the roundness and distinction of those spots. Um, and there's, yeah, there's an ideal but there's also, you know, this is better than that. Um, so that that to me was a little bit difficult. Um, and that's why I got some of the breed and, and I really love them. But it still is, you know, a mentally challenging breed to raise um, and a mentally challenging breed to judge for sure. I totally agree with you. And as we've said so many times in this podcast and our guests have said, you know, if, if you're going into a judge license and there's a breed that you don't quite understand, the best way to get an understanding is to actually raise them. So hats off to you for picking a, a breed like English spots. I don't think I would have the guts to do that. That's, that's, that's a lot. Um, but I bet you're way more confident judging them than, than you were in the beginning, right? Yeah. I mean, it really, it helps a lot. Um, I would say go get the breed you're most terrified to judge. Um, I, I guess for a lot of people, that would be checker giants um, for different reasons. But yeah, just having that experience or even now just really getting to know somebody in the breed and taking the time to go through animals with them and even, you know, to do that a few times um, to where you really feel confident with them. You know, everybody out there wants more good judges of their breed. People are thrilled to help, you know, teach you, train you, work with you, maybe send you home with, you know, an animal or two, just so you can practice looking at them, posing them. I know a lot of judges have a pet Belgian hair buck in their barn. <laughs> um, but yeah, that I think that's, you know, really the best way to do it is hands on, whether it's in your own barn or at somebody else's. Totally agree. And so I just had a similar experience. And we talked about the breeder perspective of judging is often better because you have, you know, hands-on examples of watching the highs, the lows, the pitfalls of that breed, watching them grow and develop. So you have a better understanding of it. And uh, just recently I was back in Virginia to judge not rabbits, but Angora goats. And it was the first time I got the chance to do so. Of course I raise Angora goats, but um, I often, or I always prefer to, to show them instead of uh, judge them. And unlike rabbits, the Angora goat community does not have a licensing procedure. So it's sort of um, you know, judged by expert or experience. And it was, it was really fun. It's totally different though, going in there, having, first of all, never done it. And then secondly, going in there as a breeder. And though there is a standard, it's livestock. So it's a little more subjective. And 
we have a 50-50 scorecard. So 50 points on body and 50 points on mohair, which is the fleece of the goat. But if you raise Angora goats, you know that, okay, it's, it's pretty easy to make a big bodied Angora goat. It's a totally different game to fix their minute flaws in fleece character and mohair curl and lock uh, structure and, and length and uniformity and then coverage and color because like we specialize in colored angora goats so it was really interesting to to be a, a brand new judge again um and i tried going into it i said i'm not gonna say well this one's winning over this one because i'd like to see you know you know that w- when we're trained as rabbit judges like i'd like to see this i'd like to see that i I wish that the, uh, you try to keep your, your, your personal eyes out of it and to be very objective when, you know, comparing the animal to the, to the standard, right? Oh, I caught myself several times and I even said on the mic, oh, here I am doing the things I said I wasn't going to do, which is I'd like to see, or, you know, hypothetically, blah, 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 you know, and yeah, it was, it was a challenge, but a certainly fun one. Um, and while I was back there, I got a chance to spend a couple of days at the ARBA office in Knox, Pennsylvania, and visit with our special guest today, which of course is Eric Stewart, the executive director of the ARBA. And uh, I know you haven't been back there yet, I don't think, to the the new office in Knox, Pennsylvania, but you are going to love it. There's so many cool things going on. And one thing that you are really going to dive into is the new library. And it's still in, in development. Eric and his staff there are still putting it all together, but it is a beautiful old uh, first of all, building, and then the office is beautifully lit. And finally, some of these boxes that have never been unboxed with artifacts from over a hundred years from not only the United States but um, from Europe as well will be unveiled for uh, these for our members to visit. And as Eric will talk about in his episode in a little bit, the Airbnb office is located really close to the Interstate 80 uh, freeway, which runs, you know across the country. So it's going to be very easy for people to stop in Monday through Friday to check out the office and, and really geek out like you and I do on this kind of stuff and to, and to honor the history of our association and where it's been and and where it's going. So tell us a little bit about the library from your perspective, because I know you've got a lot more experience over the years, you and your mom working in the Airbnb office uh, in the library and at the Bloomington office. So what does the library mean to you and what is it and where do you think it's going? Um, well, I think, you know, the most meaningful thing is it captures our history, um, not only the ARBA, but also of domestic rabbits, you know, in North America and Europe, the history of the show rabbit industry. Um, we first visited in 2006 when it was still in Bloomington. And actually, I got to scan the oldest publication they had in the library. It wasn't very, um, very long. So I scanned that in while my mom kind of looked through the collection. Um, my mom is actually a librarian by profession. So she knows all about, you know, cataloging things and sorting them. And she's been working on that for years um, to try to digitize some of the uh, collection to get that catalog up and running to make some things more available to the membership. So I know she spends a lot of time, and I don't know the whole process. I'm definitely not an expert in this, but I know that they are using the Dewey Decimal System as opposed to the Library of Congress. That's probably what most of your local libraries and your um, K-12 through libraries use, where things are organized by subject according to a number uh, code. And she's been looking these books up by their ISBN numbers, finding Dewey Decimal numbers, you know, assigning those and cataloging all the items we have in the library, which is pretty vast. Um, But it's just, I mean, it's fascinating. I can't imagine anyone not finding something in there just to dive into and geek out on. Um, There are old ARBA publications. There are things by breed clubs that are in there. Um, You know, no matter what your interest is in the hobby, 
there's something there for everyone. And it's a wonderful, you know, historical record of our association. We are thrilled to welcome our guest for this episode, ARBA Executive Director Eric Stewart from Pennsylvania. For 37 years, Eric has actively been one of the most devoted and passionate members, judges, and leaders in the ARBA. English Lops, Holland Lops, English Spots include some of his early breeds, but his career as a Minirex breeder and French Angora breeder surmount in his biggest achievements as a breeder today. As a judge, he's been nationally selected to judge the ARBA convention best in show many times. Eric's favorite parts of the rabbit and KB industry are learning more about different breeds and sharing his passion for rabbits and cavies and the positive impacts this industry has on young and old alike. Welcome, Eric Stewart, to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Alan. So let's begin at the beginning. Uh, was there a first rabbit for you that got you hooked? And um, how did your journey begin? Well, just like a lot of young people, um, my first rabbit was basically a crossbred. It was supposed to be in New Zealand. And um, her name or his name was Rutherford. It was supposed to be a 4-H project. And my brothers and I got three rabbits and they were all supposed to be bucks. Well, they were all three does. They each had a litter. And then we also had a 4-H breeding project. And Rutherford became Francesca. And that started my rabbit, rabbit career, really. So who were some of your early mentors in the ARBA that exposed you to the ARBA show side of things, not just having some 4-H rabbits or maybe even backyard meat rabbits? Um, a lot of those people aren't currently involved, but I remember um, Karen and Richard Norbert. They got me really hooked on the Holland Lops. And Larry Grundler, who is one of the most acclaimed mini lop breeders um, that's ever been, he was another person who was instrumental um, just in getting breeding stock. Then when I started raising English spots, that's when I got to know Kim and Susan Barry uh, from Shakura PA. And I went to so many shows with Kim and Susan. And it was, it was really great that they were able to take some of my English spots to the national shows so I could compete even though I wasn't able to go. So had it not been for those folks helping me in those formative years, I may not be here today. When was your first ARBA convention? My first convention that I attended was in 1992 in Columbus, Ohio. And what was it like all the way back then walking in that showroom for the very first time? Oh, I was terrified, you know, because you, you hear about the convention and you think, oh, my gosh, you know, all of these big breeders are going to be there. And I'm, you know, I'm just this little person. And then, um, you know, you, you start to meet some of these other individuals and you're like, oh, you have dirt on your shoes, too. Oh, I guess apparently you also scrape rabbit pans like these are regular people. But back in those days, we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have social media. So everything came in through your magazine that came or your newsletter from each of the national specialty clubs. So you would only see names and you see the pictures of people dressed up or showing these fantastic rabbits. And then you, you actually humanize people when you meet them in person. So, and of course I was, I was a rambunctious young man. <laughs> so I, you know, I was, I was nervous, but at the same time I was taking in everything I possibly could. And that was the year that I sh showed my Holland Lops and didn't do as well as what I thought they should have done. And then I also had my English spots there too. 
And that year, that was the first time I ever won. Obviously, it was my first convention, but it was also my first breed and opposite wins at a convention with my spots. That's a pretty big accomplishment for anyone going to their very first ARB convention. Uh, Brian and I have talked about our past, and she did pretty well at her early conventions, including a best of breed. And we've had Josh Humphreys on. He had a best of breed, even though he was so concerned about how his overweight chestnut Britannia Petite senior doe did. She didn't do very well. Um, it's certainly better than, than my first convention. But uh, your reactions to going to your first convention are, are not dissimilar to any of ours. It's that wide-eyed, oh my God, I can't believe I'm here. Look at all these celebrities. And I have to admit that you know, we're great friends today. We've been friends for almost 25 years. But uh, you were one of those celebrities in my mind when I grew up. And I remember the very first time I saw you at a show. And I thought, oh my God, there's Eric Stewart. And um, you've certainly inspired me and, and hundreds of other people over the years. So I'm very grateful today to call you a dear friend. So um, what inspired you to get an ARBA judge license? You have both a rabbit and KV. Um, and when was that? My first, the first time I ever even considered becoming an ARBA judge was, I think it was 19, is either 1989 or 1990 at the Mad River Valley Rabbit Show in Urbana, Ohio. There was a silver haired tall fella and he was judging satins. And it just so happens when I walked past the table, he was on black intermediate box. That's how vividly I remember this. And he had this, sounded like Texas drawl or Southern accent or something. Turns out this was Tex Thomas. And the manner in which this, this judge gave comments, it, it was like listening to dairy reasons or livestock reasons. I mean, he was so consistent and articulate and deliberate in his handling of the rabbits. And it's like, I was standing on the one side of the table and I could feel the fur on these satins. I could feel the type and see the type on these satins just by listening to Tex Thomas's comments. And I remember that buck tooth, red haired, freckle faced kid sitting there in awe and thinking, I want to be like him someday. You know, and that was the first time because I had never even entertained the notion of becoming a judge before then. So it, it's amazing to think just little things like that, how much it can impact somebody. Yeah. And, and there's uh, there's no way to value, you know, what what we do when we walk in a showroom today. We take for granted our position and as judges. But certainly there are kids all over the country that, that look to you today and have that same wide eyed look and aspire and maybe are inspired to to take on that role as a judge or breeder or, or even more. So what year did you get your ARBA judge license for rabbits? I got my rabbit license in 1995. And back then, you know, I was still a college student. So I literally lived out of my car. I took the test in August and I drove up to Sam Rizzo's house and I took the test with Sherlyn Link. I believe there were a couple other individuals there too, but I had to get back in time for me to, um, I had RA orientation for the resident <laughs> advisors down at college. So I had to orchestrate and plan my test from start to finish. So I took the test the day before I went down to RA orientation. And then I remember calling the ARBA office and asking for Glenn Carr because I wanted to know my test results. And, you know, you eagerly keep waiting for the test results. And when I finally got them, which I think it was probably sometime late in the week, the first week of September, 
I had to take a month off of my part-time job that I had in college so I could work my assists. And I wanted to do it before we got into like midterms or finals or anything. So I lived out of my car. I had loaf of bread, peanut butter, jelly, and a thermos of water. And I had a little battery operated alarm clock. And I would travel from like Cobleskill, New York. And then the next day I would go assist a show up in Maine with Lindsay Benoit. And then I might come back, you know, have class on Monday and maybe go to a fair on a Tuesday, Allentown fair. And I think I worked with, I think it was George Long there, but just, I had to orchestrate it out so I could work these shows and then be able to buckle back down, go to work and have classes again. So I, I fully appreciate and understand young people today and, um, you know, or newer judges coming in and just that eagerness to get your assists going. Um, and I never want to lose that excitement. You know, I understand it. Would you change anything today if you were looking back on your license, if you didn't have to live out of your car and eat PB&J and have a thermos of water, if you could go back and you know, redo those assists, not, not particularly the judges, but maybe the process or the speed, would there be anything you would change about it or are the memories just as you'd like them? Oh, no, it was absolutely miserable to live like that. Um, if I had it, if I could have had the option of taking the time to um, maybe spend more time selecting different shows and working with judges. But I also knew that because of my financial situation and being in school, if I was going to do it, I had to get it done. But you can also continue to educate yourself beyond that. I worked assists as a licensed judge. I mean, they weren't formal assists per A or B A definition. I already had a license, but you still seek out breeders, seek out other judges. Um, I remember going to the National Tan Show, and I don't know, it was 97, just so I could work under Gene Johnston. Like that was the whole purpose in going, is I spent the day working with him and fine-tuning um, understanding the markings. How do you judge a tan? And that's really where judges continue education. We can legislate things through the association that you have to take um, a review test or go to judges conferences, but like anything else in life, like you get out of it, what you put into it. And if you're truly passionate, you're going to seek out educational opportunities at every, every chance you can get. And I still do it to this very day. Um, I could name either judges or breeders where I've gone to the house or we spent time at a show and just talking about, Hey, this is what I've observed or, um, what do you think about this concept? So if you care, you're going to go the extra mile. If you don't care, time to make the donuts and you just hit repeat. But yeah, as you said, you never stop learning. Um, when you got to judge your first convention, what was that like and what breed was it and where was it? Oh, this is an embarrassing one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The first convention I judged was in 1998. I was judging dwarfs and my favorite group in all breeds at all times are always the agoutis. And I pulled the agouti group. I was so excited. This was Madison, Wisconsin. So I I judged and I learned a lot of valuable lessons that that weekend. And one of it was you don't want to pick a 10 week old baby for best of variety. Then you get stuck picking it for best of group. And there was a gentleman by the name of Rude Brown 
Um, he, if anybody who knows about Neville and Dwarfs or the history, they know Rude. Rude was a fantastic breeder, fantastic man. And he had a very strong Jamaican accent. And I remember him coming up to me, putting his hand on my shoulder, and he gripped me to the point where I thought I probably had a bruise. <laughs> he said, boy, I think you already know what you did wrong. <laughs> but And they were very nice rabbits. It was a pair of chestnuts. Turned out they were even litter mates that won chestnut op- variety and opposite, group and opposite. But, um, you know, the breeders, everyone, they were cute. But I, I guess it's one of those things where I think in the back of my head where text would tell you, as you're picking a class, remember that rabbit's going up to compete for additional awards. Um, make sure that it can compete for the additional awards. So, you know, it was a great experience. I loved it. I was scared. But at the same time, um, I learned a lot. And what about judging best in show and getting voted? You know, there's, there's really no moment like that. If you ask any judge, I'm sure that's been up on that stage. Do you remember your first time being selected to judge a group or, or the big one, the best in show? And what did it feel like? The first time I picked best in show was in 04 in Providence. And I just remember, you know, that cold feeling where, you know, a car pulls out in front of you and the the adrenaline rush where you just feel cold and tingly all over. When they told me that I, I was going to be picking open best in show, I, I just felt cold and it actually brought tears to my eyes. I mean, just the very thought of somebody like me, you know, that stuff, those, those opportunities don't happen to somebody like me. So just the honor of it and also the weight of expectation because you don't want to disappoint. I mean, this is our crown jewel event. And they asked, they asked me this little boy from Western Pennsylvania with his, you know, five pound Holland lob gets to pick an ARBA best in show. It was amazing. And what about in 2013? One of my vivid memories of you is judging open best in show at the convention here in Pennsylvania, your home state. What did that feel like to be doing that uh, in the place where you grew up and and found this industry as a child? Oh, it it was incredibly special. And the fact that, you know, our convention was hosted at the farm show complex, which is, you know, in Pennsylvania, we don't have a state fair. We have our farm show in January. And you're right that even the building is meaningful to me as far as memories and to finally have a convention back in Pennsylvania in 2013 after the last one having been in 76. Um, again, just there, it's an honor, but also the weight of responsibility. You know, I owe this to our exhibitors to do the very best job possible. So it definitely memories of a lifetime. And now even looking back, the just, also the honor, you don't know, you don't know, and it doesn't matter who the owners are of the rabbits, but you know, that was the year Doug, Doug Harrow won best in show with the Florida white. And to think, you know, even what that, that award meant to him and, you know, with his untimely passing, you know, last year, this last year that, um, you know, it just makes it all the more, even, even emotional. Yeah, it certainly does. It's it's an emotional event, and to think that people get they get one vote and they get to when they strike your name, 
it's uh it, it weighs a lot on your head and like i don't know that cold feeling but i know that the blank feeling of being up there and not quite sure knowing what i'm supposed to do but uh those are memories that uh, last with us for a lifetime so it's really special to episode uh with you today because we're actually in person this is not a phone call from a, a country away me in california and you in pennsylvania we're actually sitting here in the arb office and uh, we're sitting in two chairs that i recognize from from previous visits to the arb office in the past and we're surrounded by all this memorabilia but we're really surrounded by a lot of excitement um for the new arb office which it's not really a new new building but it's a new home for the arba um, we'd love to dedicate an upcoming episode to the ARBA and, and more history and have you and maybe Ellie Bondi uh, talking about all of the great work you guys do to preserve our history. Um, but before we talk about where we are now in the ARBA office, we take us back in time just briefly and talk about where the ARBA office, offices were over the years and, um, and, and where we are today. You know, beginning back in, I think it was in Colorado, correct? Yeah, Colorado, Chicago, uh, Pittsburgh, Bloomington. Um, and now here in Knox, PA. And just to see that our association, and it's funny because we've been working on some articles and even some things that, some items that I'm not able to discuss yet because they're still confidential. There's a lot of exciting things that you can be looking forward to in Louisville. I I can say that much. But it's prompted a lot of research um, in the genesis of the ARBA over the years. And even when there was the split with the old American and the new American and and defining all of these dates and what happened here and there. And and our move here to the new office has actually prompted that, but it's also because we've been able to expand. There are things that have been in boxes before that we're finding that, you know, information that we didn't know before. So, um, you know, it's, it's really exciting to, to have this new era and see where it takes us. So we're actually sitting on some memorabilia. There's things surrounding us that are part of history. Um, our audience can't see us, but yeah, what is, what's the lampshade, for example, that's, that's on this little coffee table between us? Well, one of my heroes that, and, and I never knew him, he passed before I was even born, but Jimmy Blythe, he was the ARBA secretary um, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, when it was on McMurray Avenue. And so we have even this, the way we have the table set here and the chairs and the rug. And this was actually Jimmy Blythe's desk lamp. And it's a silver, somebody painted it, but it's a silver rabbit. And one of the things that we're going to be doing for my office, my office is actually going to be part of the ARBA library. Um, so much is done electronically now. There's no reason that members can't come and see the ARBA executive director's office. You'll note, I don't even have a door on my doorway. I don't want one. This should be open and inviting. So this this actual room is going to be at the history of ARBA secretaries and executive directors. So um, there's no reason that this shouldn't be part of the library as well. We all can't wait for that. So you are the current ARBA executive director. Uh, how long have you had this position and what inspired you to to take that pathway? Um, I've been in this position since 2009. So it's been 12 years going on 13. Uh, Prior to executive director, I was the district nine director on the board of directors and I became the D nine director in 2003. 
So I've had 18 years of continuous service on the ARBA board. Um, so it, it's something I would have, again, never dreamed. Someone like me, that little boy in Western Pennsylvania, <laughs> uh, to, to, to have this opportunity. And I, I didn't apply the first time the position became available, but um, after a lot of thought, and it was one of these things where I had to decide, what do I want to do in life? Like, what's, where am I going to go? And I was in a situation where I could have continued on in my, my previous career, or I could start living for what I wanted to do. You know, there's a difference between living for things and living for experiences. And I made the decision that I wanted to live for experiences. So I'm, I'm a man of modest means. I will not die a wealthy man from a financial standpoint, but I'm already incredibly wealthy by the experiences, the friends, and I get to do for a living what most people could only dream of. So I, I work for people whom I love. I get to do something that I, I, I want to do for the rest of my life. So I'm blessed. Well, we are very blessed to have you. What would you consider is your proudest accomplishment um, in those 18 years serving the ARBA on the board and as executive director for the past 12 years? Um, I, I would actually say, and this might sound a bit crude, but financial solvency. Um, when I took the position, we were in a very dire situation. And within the first 12 months, we were able to get everything back in the black. And over time, despite, you know, uh, inflation, our cultural, economic, and, and all the other changes that have occurred in our country, and then also within our industry, um, agriculture has been under attack basically by urban sprawl. And considering all of the you know, other organizations that may be similar to ours, registries, um, the ARBA is in a wonderful position, particularly in comparison to similar organizations as ourselves. So that's something is you, you kind of sometimes feel like uh, you're, you're the watchdog, you know, always trying to, to look ahead as to what trends may be coming and what can we do to adjust to accommodate so we're being proactive in our needs versus reactionary to external causes. That is a great accomplishment. And it leads into a question I was going to ask you a little later, but I think maybe now it's more timely. Um, and, and where do you see our industry in the ARB in the next 10 years? And what separates us from other livestock species? You touched on it in that it's no longer, you know, a, a a tried and true tradition across the country in most families. So what separates, and I, I can speak personally and you can too, because you show an open breed of livestock and gore goats like I do. And we've seen the massive decline just in our breed, but really across the livestock industry where open show breeding animals. So non-market, non-terminal, these are animals that will go back into a program. Um, what separates us from livestock? And can you think of something that, or, or several things maybe that the ARBA has done to preserve our traditions so that we continue strong because we are strong, we are keep going, and people are continuing to be interested and we get new people all the time. So what separates us? Well, as, as I'm sure you anticipate, that's a very involved question. Um, 
actually, I think our founding fathers um, did a great job with setting up the structure of our association. And you'll remember before we were what for food, fur, fiber, um, and we still we're still a livestock organization. Rabbits are livestock. They're also companion animals. And one thing the ARBA has never discouraged or marginalized any pursuit involving rabbits or cavies. So I think that was by remaining open and trying to have something for everyone that that was brilliant. And that's something we're, we continue to this day. Um, you'll note in our domestic rabbits magazine, which is actually one of the biggest incentives people list as to why they want to be a member of our association. Um, most magazines don't even look like domestic rabbits and that's basically, I mean, it's the voice of our association. It's a member benefit. You have to be a member. You can't purchase a subscription separately. So, but you look at each issue of the DR, we have informative articles. Um, we, we inform people about the clubs and provide education regarding organizational structure and shows. We have veterinary uh, articles. Um, we also have a, a recipe for rabbit. And, you know, if you don't, if you raise rabbits or you have a few rabbits as companion animals, that's fine. We also have people who have entire commercial farms, people who show rabbits and are heavily involved with standard, standard bred rabbits per the ARBA standard of perfection. We have cross appeal. And we've also been able, because rabbits are more affordable, and especially with urban sprawl, you can actually raise a competitive herd of rabbits in your detached garage. Some people have rabbits in their basement. You know, they're more affordable. Whereas when we're going to the goat shows, I mean, that's an entire production. You've got to have a truck that can pull a trailer. Then you have the animals and just the gas and, and everything involved is a lot different than going to a rabbit show. So, and I don't want to sound like I'm speaking ill of other other industries, but also the anonymity. And this is one thing I always go back to. And a lot of times whenever I'm shoveling manure, I know that's probably sounds terrible, but those are where I have a lot of epiphanies that time alone where you're cleaning cages, you're shoveling manure thinking. And the one thing I always keep going back to is there are limitless, limitless possibilities with rabbits. I don't care if you are a multimillionaire or you're a 12-year-old kid with a paper route. With rabbits, it's purely about the rabbits and the sport. We do not have handlers. The rabbits are put on the table. And even when we go to the big conventions, nationals, conventions, judges don't even read the first place year number. We have no idea. The politics stay out of it. It is purely about the rabbits. And if you work hard enough, there are no secrets to, to, to having great rabbits. It's a, it's a matter of consistency and your commitment. If you are committed and you consistently care for them and you work at it, you can win convention best in show. You have an equal opportunity with anyone else. It has nothing to do with money, affiliations, or politics. It's, it's pure. And that's, I guess, what I really love about it. And it allowed a a kid from the hills of Western Pennsylvania to build a life around something he's truly passionate about and loves. 
and you nail it when you said, and this is something I never thought about, but rabbits themselves are as diverse in an industry as the people that go to the shows. You can be a mechanic, you could be a world famous physician, or you could own Radio Shack. And when you're in a rabbit showroom or a KB showroom, it's all neutralized. Mm -hmm. Do you remember being around some of those, those people that were, you know, way ahead of you in career or in life? And how did you feel around them? Oh, you would be absolutely intimidated, but only in the beginning. Like, I'll never forget meeting Mary Louise Cowan. Oh, I, I, I just couldn't believe I shared air with this woman. And the, but that, that all goes away after about five or 10 minutes of spending time with somebody. And you think, wow, maybe I have biases. I shouldn't just assume, you know, did you know that Chris Zemney also cleans rabbit manure? You know, every Glenn Carr has scraped pans. Like we go through everyone who raises rabbits at some point in time has poop under their fingernails. You know, they're just like us, even though they may have another career. And, and just, again, that humanizing element that, that occurs as you bond over our, our shared love and it expands your own worldview. How would you say, you know, you and I both grew up doing this. We started as kids. We got addicted to the ARBA in this industry. We both traveled around the world doing rabbits way beyond borders we ever imagined. How does the youth contingent and the youth adherence in the ARBA lend itself to the strength of the ARBA and, and those within it? I mean, it, it's imperative. And that's one of the things that a lot of other, because I, I also meet with other executive directors or officials and other registries for other species. So, and one thing that they keep coming back to is what a wonderful youth program you have. And, you know, realistically, a lot of our youth members, they may not want to raise rabbits later in life. But again, just like 4-H, FFA, or anything else, the things that they learn um, add to their resources moving forward in life. And, you know, that's where we also get member retention. We've got a lot of our youth that do stay involved with rabbits. Um, even if you're in college, you know, they might have to get rid of their rabbits for a period of time or mom and dad inherit rabbits. And that's actually where we, we retain a lot of members is the kids move on to college and start their lives. But we get mom and dad, we get grandma and grandpa. But I still do believe a lot of the youth do come back because they see how enriching it was in their life to be involved, whether it's in the youth contest, youth royalty, or showing the rabbits themselves. And they want those opportunities for their kids. And you look at a lot of families that we're even seeing now, the parents may not have shown rabbits as children. Maybe they had market lambs or they would show a market steer, market hog. But with urban sprawl, they don't have the opportunities to be able to provide that for their kids. And they're like, well, you know what? We can do rabbits. And the kids can still have a market project, still be involved, and get those same enriching opportunities. But you don't have to, because really, again, urban sprawl, cost of housing, all of that, it, it just takes a lot more that if you're going to be able to keep large livestock on your property. You know, I think a lot of us will say that when we first decided to, to do this rabbit or KV journey as kids, our parents were kicking and screaming, saying, no, please, no. Like, <laughs> anything else, 
well, maybe not anything that's breathing anyway. What would you say to your parents um, today or other parents that maybe are kind of apprehensive towards their, their son or daughter getting into rabbits? How would you talk to them? If you, if you could talk to every single parent that, that was like, Eric, my kid wants to do rabbits. My kid wants to raise gabies. What would you say to them? Um, it is much more enjoyable than going to visit them at rehab or in prison. And that's one thing is paying things forward, whatever it is. And, and I'm not speaking ill about sports or other activities, but you look at what the con- what concepts are involved with raising rabbits or cavies. You know, it you must be responsible. Their consistency of care every day, your care and concern for another living thing, um, even financial considerations. What does it cost to feed them? How much time is involved? Can I do this? And, and, and that's something that the kids will learn. And you know what? Maybe after the first six months or a year, they think, you know, this project isn't for me. Well, you didn't break the bank. The kids still, the young person still did learn from and grow from the experience, but you pay it forward now. I mean, my previous career, I worked with drug addiction, out, you know, dependence and working with teenagers and it was just so difficult to see these young people that they needed something. And this provides way more than what you could ever even dream it could. And we talked earlier about that, like the humanizing, the neutralizing that goes into a showroom. How active, how involved can youth be in adult activities? And, and what are some of the, the lessons that they can learn by, by involvement, whether that's as a judge or being on a committee for a club? I mean, can you talk about some of the opportunities, the adult opportunities that are there for kids? Absolutely. And, and whenever you see, and, and I'm actually going to use the Pennsylvania State Rabbit Breeders Association as an example in this. Um, and again, not speaking about any other organization, just my experience with Pasarba is, you know, I look back at Peg Haley. Peg Haley really got me involved from taking me from 4-H to understand and grow more on the ARBA side of things. I was the only kid that came from my county that did anything with rabbits um, as far as on the 4-H level. So I would go down and she, she taught me about that. And that's where I got into the Pasarba Youth Royalty. And that was the first year that Pasarba even had a youth royalty program. So, and then going up through the years, you know, as a young person, you've done everything you possibly can. You know, you were the 4-H ambassador, you were the rabbit king, you do these things, but they were wonderful about engaging older teens and young adults into leadership positions. So they would put you on a committee. So then I got to be on a committee and learn how that works. And here I am just still a youth and I'm working with adults in their mentoring and training. And once I was in college, um, they appointed me. I was, I became this, the treasurer of Pasarba. And by the way, I did a terrible job. Nothing bad happened with any money, but I was just too involved with school. But there was an opportunity there that I could have become disenfranchised and they could have pushed, said, you know what? You're doing a terrible job. You need to resign. No, it was a matter of, okay, you're not doing a very good job. This is what we need to do. And again, the encouragement. And if you look through Johnny Hausner, um, Denise Ancharsky Stutler. I mean, I, I hate to just name names because Ruth Ann Bell, like all of these people from Pasarba that when you went away to college, you had to get rid of your rabbits because you were in school, but they would still keep you so engaged 
with the organization that you were you were excited to get back. You couldn't wait to get your rabbits back again because this was still your community. And the, even the things that, that you learn through these positions and interacting with adults on committees, um, and even if you're pursuing your judge's license, you're, you're expanding your perspective by having these more intimate relationships with persons who might be older than you, and you grow from it faster than if you were growing, growing from it at a normal pace for your age. So it really does help as far as both intellectually, emotionally, across the gamut, you actually grow and mature faster by being engaged and involved with uh, more mature persons. Do you think that will ever change in the ARBA? Do you think that uh, kids will, will stop finding out about rabbits and cabies? Over my dead body. I love it. All right, let's shift back to the ARB office uh, and, and this beautiful building that we're in and, and the completion of the ARB headquarters is, is well underway. Um, what are you most excited about for the, the final completion of this building? You put so many hours, yourself and your, your team here, your staff into this building and volunteers and so many more volunteers I, I'm sure will show up and, and lend a hand too. Uh, I know there's pieces of this building that, that actually came from your home too. I mean, <laughs> Every piece of you went into this. So what are you excited about most uh, when this is all done? Well, what I would say I'm most excited about is to, to be able to actually open the doors and everyone has the opportunity to, again, what are you interested in? You know, we've had the library and, you know, we had a beautiful library in Bloomington, but those contents fit into one room here. The entire Bloomington library goes in one room. We have four other rooms to fill. So all of these boxes we can actually, and we're finding treasures as we're opening them too. Um, Johnny Hausner was out here researching for the master breeder program. And we found, we came across this one box and I'm like, well, I guess we're not getting home before dark tonight because <laughs> we couldn't wait to go through it. And just to be able to provide those opportunities for everyone else and, you know, have, have the, the Airbnb office be, the historic crown jewel that members can can come to again and, and can expand what they're able to see. And for once, we can get those National Specialty Club newsletters and history out of those cardboard boxes onto shelves and just being able to share all of this with everyone. And we've got enough space here that, you know, we'll be able to host a rabbit school. We're going to eagerly uh, invite members to come um, just so they, they can see, because this is your office. This is not my office. This is the membership's office, library, and museum. And tell everyone exactly how close this uh, this office is to a major major interstate. This is, this is not a, a very hard place to get to visit. <laughs> no. Um, I guess it would be a Pennsylvania saying, like, you can spit to the interstate from here. Um, yeah, even when Josh Humphreys had come by a few weeks ago, he's like, I missed it. I didn't really, it is right off the interstate. So it's right off of I-80. It's the Knox exit. And, you know, right now we're still working on finishing renovation work. Uh, once the furniture is uh, completed, we can start uh, getting more of that out. And my anticipated plan is we should potentially have a lot of things unpacked, have some of this furniture up by the sometime around the first of the year, but we would like to do an official 
opening ribbon cutting perhaps sometime in June. Uh, just looking at the weather and making certain that it's the weather is going to be accommodating for people to get up and go. <clears throat> a lot of national specialty shows will have already been done. So, and we want to give enough notice so folks can plan. And as Alan, as you can see the parking, we have tons of parking. We're right off a major interstate, very easy to access. And we want to get as many people here as possible for when we do the opening. Hopefully sometime in June, but I, I can't give a definite yet. June of 2022. I can't wait. And I will certainly be there as well as many, many others. We can't wait. Um, you know, of course, this building and this new headquarters serves as kind of a tangible evidence to where the ARBA has been, you know, in the past. And it's and we can see, you know, some differences. But how about in your role as a executive director now that you've been in this role more than more than 10 years? How has your job changed compared to you the 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 men of your past that that had this role 10 20 30 even 50 years ago what's what's different about being ARBA executive director today versus executive director or formerly secretary in the past um there are pros and cons i guess that might be a politically correct way to address that um a lot of it has to do with our changing culture and society and expectations um everything's done electronically now um, people don't write letters, and which is fine. I mean, it's postage, 57 cents for a stamp versus shooting an email. But then people expect instant responses on things, um, where because that's the culture we live in now. Whereas I remember when I first became a, a board member back in 03, Glenn Carr would mail the ballots for the board if we're voting on, a, on an initiative, and then you'd have the envelope inside. You would mark your ballot, mail it back to the office. So like now everything's done electronically, even with the board. So we can have a ballot turnaround if something were an emergency. We've only had a couple of those. But we have a ballot turnaround in like 48 hours, which would not have been possible back in the day prior to email. Um, but a lot of it has to do with the changes and, and we have to make changes because of postal rates, the cost of printing, um, you know, by doing a lot of things digitally, it's an enhancement for our members, but it can also make it a little difficult for the staff because everyone expects an instant response and that's not always possible. Um, but I also see with, with that, also provides the opportunities to get information to people faster. Um, as soon as something's voted on and we have it, uh, we have a new initiative, we can post that right on the web. It's accessible to everyone. You don't have to wait two months to get your DR. Um, you can get it right there on the ARBA website or our Facebook page. So there are pros and cons to everything. Um, and also the number one cost in any business is labor. So we, by doing a lot of our automated functions, we don't have as much in the way of staffing as what we once did. And that's one thing, if I can make a plea, please email. Um, I mean, we have limited phone hours because we have limited staffing because we need to be responsible with the ARBA finances. So every time you're taking a phone call, you're not getting your work done. And most questions are best addressed in an email because there's also even a written documentation of what was said uh, or what the instructions are, or the question can be get, we can get to that question in just a matter of minutes. Um, where sometimes when we're on the phone, 
you hear about the weather. And, and I, I love to be able to talk, obviously. Um, but we also have to be responsible because, again, this is not my time. This is your time. You, I, I'm your employee. So it's very important that I make the best use of the time. And honestly, that's often best done via email. Well, I know you're a busy guy and you've got to get back to work. The phone's been ringing ever since we started this interview. <laughs> and I know that it rings in three other rooms in this entire office that we can't even hear from right here. Um, but one last question I want to ask you, and that's something that Brian and I love to ask our um, podcast guests. And that is, if there could be a perfect rabbit and KB show, what would it look like for Eric Stewart? Oh, um, I would be able to judge rabbits and KBs at the same show. And it would be a day where maybe we even only had a single show and there was time to do education with young people. And, and, and who knows, maybe I, I might even have an assist that day because that's one thing I'm always very passionate about. I love working with the next generation and, you know, a chill day and they have salad on the lunch menu, nothing fried. I don't want a hot dog or a hamburger I want something green, <laughs> healthy. <laughs> and we have a relaxing day and everybody, everybody in the showroom has a great day as well. doesn't sound like uh, too different from a lot of the guests that we have on this, especially the, the attention to those smaller shows, those, those shows where we have more time to educate and spend time with the people that we, that we love, our ARBA family. Eric, thanks so much for taking time to be on this podcast. Um, You're an inspiration to me for 25 plus years and so many, many others. Thank you for everything you do. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in Louisville. Thank you, Alan. Look forward to seeing you all. That was an extra special interview to be able to do with our ARBA Executive Director, Eric Stewart, there at the home office in Knox, Pennsylvania. That is, of course, the home office of our ARBA. Um, We realized, Brian and I both, that many of you are on the road, you're hitting the roads or maybe cleaning carriers or doing those last minute preps for the ARBA convention in Louisville. We wish everyone a very safe journey to Louisville. We hope to see you there. And uh, we hope that you're listening in as you travel to and from Louisville. And as a last reminder, as always, don't forget to follow us on the Rabbitry page on Facebook that will continue to be our hub each and every week as we uh, post episodes. Um, and of course, it's the hub for previous episodes too. So if you're just finding our podcast, you can check out The Rabbitry on Facebook, like, follow, share it. And there are links to former and current episodes and, of course, many more episodes to come for this Best in Show podcast. And as Brian and I love to end every episode, we've got a quote for you today. And I think it's really relevant to the Airbnb office and change and, gosh, all the flexibilities that we've had to endure and encounter over the last 18 months and really almost two years now. And that came, uh, comes from um, author Mark Jacobs. Change is a great and horrible thing, and people love it or hate it at the same time. Without change, however, you just don't move. All right, everyone, don't forget, keep talking rabbits, keep talking cavies. See you in Louisville. See you on our next episode. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.org.